In his name, I celebrate the, his Advent 2021 with you today, my dear friends. You know, I got a philosophical question for you, uh, in case any of you took a philosophy class in college. I'm sorry about that. If you did, you'll probably regret it. Why does stuff happen? Pretty dumb, obvious question, right? Why is our world the way it is today? How did it come to be? Well, if you listen, you will hear various opinions. One would be total random coincidence, great big explosion, and then a long string of evolutions, mutations, and coincidences, and voila, here we are. Some people think, why does stuff happen the way it does? It's all governed by the stars. Those big astrology believers believe that the positions of the stars in the sky along with the wandering planets, the nine planets or eight and Pluto, depending if you want to let Pluto be called a planet. Um, that's really what governs what happens on this earth. Some people believe in fate. Everything you do has been locked into you at birth. And no matter what you can do, your personality is fixed. Your skills, your aptitudes, your achievements are all locked in. You are destined. People who believe in destiny, whatever that might be. Some mysterious force that controls you. Some people believe all of that is, is uh, baloney. And the real cause behind why does stuff happen is human beings make it happen. We are the masters of the universe. Uh, we make it happen. In fact, also bad things, uh, for instance, climate change, uh, a great many people believe it is you who are destroying the planet and we must end the use of all kinds of energy consumption that involve the burning of fossil fuels of any kind. You're the ones who did it. Uh, so that every bad weather event that takes place in the universe uh, in the coming year will be because of human action. So where did you come from? Well, the atheists and agnostics who are your friends and that you work with and go to school with and maybe who are your bosses or your professors where you study will say, I really don't see any evidence for uh, God as a cause of anything happening in this world. I don't see any evidence at all. And you know, there is some truth in that. Instead of just saying what idiots they are, there actually is a big disconnect. But that is truly our own sinful fault. Heaven and earth used to be together. The Garden of Eden had a beautiful intimacy where you could talk to God as though you were chatting with a family member. There was direct interchange of content and ideas. There was no evil. There was complete trust, complete security, complete plenty for everyone. Because of the human revolt, there was a great split. And now instead of living in Eden, we live in a strange mix of the Garden of Eden and hell. Think about it. And that's our fault. But there is now no direct, easy way to see God at work. We are desperately in need of his word to tell us what's going on. Or we'd be stuck with reasoning that the world came to be because of destiny, fate, the alignment of the stars, or total coincidence, or worse yet, that everything has been built by the human race, which, of course, is nonsense. 
But you have to pay attention to the word and let God explain to you where did stuff come from and why do things happen the way that they do. We are in, I've been really kind of thinking about this all week. We are in a world that's half hell and half Garden of Eden. And I don't mean to get you so wound up and depressed about what a a hellhole that we have to endure. But it it is bad, isn't it? I mean, the, uh, the threats to you personally, this disease called COVID that is just breezily blowing around the world and finding ways to weasel its way into even hospitals, homes, nursing homes, and just attack people. And we're floundering around trying to figure out a way to repress it. It's just one nasty example of how our world is broken. As I was talking about it last week with you, the fact that civil order is breaking down, that people no longer have any respect for police and they simply blow through traffic lights and stop signs as though they weren't even there. That would have been unthinkable in my younger years. It was even unthinkable five years ago. Now it is not only thinkable, I suggest to you, you better plan on it happening and be really extra alert anytime you're near an intersection. Because you cannot assume that civil order is, is holding up anymore. It is bad. It is also, though, there still are traces of the original Garden of Eden. This is still an incredibly beautiful world. If you suck your lungs full of the scent of pine needles up north and the stillness, hearing the huge birds caw and cry far above you, when you see the splash, a silvery splash of a fish way out in the middle of the lake, jumping for joy at being alive, you just think, wow. Just, and you've maybe in 2021 had your wow moments. There still is beauty. There still is beauty in people, even though we're broken. We're beautiful as well. And living now in this half hell, half heaven, We're navigating our way through it, but realize we are at risk because the hellish half is trying to grab us by the ankles and pull us down. We need God's sustaining word to give us hope not to give up. We're in the waiting time right now. We're not only waiting for Christmas, but that's kind of a symbol of also waiting for Jesus' second coming as well. And some of you are maybe in a moment of heaven in your life where everything's going well and you're not in a hurry uh, to go to heaven because things are like working pretty well for you right now. One old guy told me once I was visiting him in his home. Uh, He was not a real regular church attender and I asked if he wanted to get communion in his home and he said, yeah. And I said, are you at peace with the Lord if today was the last day of your life? Are are you ready to go to heaven? And he said, yeah, but not quite yet. I want to enjoy my money for a while. Uh, He actually ended up committing suicide. Um, One of the saddest days of my whole ministry was realizing that man had so much mess going on inside his head that I never knew the half of. I was new and didn't know his backstory. He was really miserable. And it's because he was following the wrong things. No, if there was faith in his heart, I'll let God, Jesus, take care of the judging. But my point is that he wearied of the waiting. I don't, are you wearied of the waiting? Some days I think you are. I, I sure am. I'm weary of the waiting. 
When I was a kid, I was weary of the march to Christmas because the month of December took forever, didn't it? That time just crawls in December. And every new bit of decorations around the house just meant it's coming, but man, it ain't here yet. Hurry, hurry, faster, faster. I'm weary of waiting for Jesus too. The older you are, the more deeply the lines are cut in your skin. You've seen so much pain. You've seen so much brokenness. You think, come soon, Lord Jesus. I'm ready, ready for you now. So the wait sometimes is a hard slog. Man, I'll tell you, the wait for Jesus the first time was a hard slog too. And God knew that. He knew that people had chosen to live in brokenness. And it broke his heart. But he let it happen. Why? Because he gave the human race the dignity of consequences. You know what I mean by that? The dignity of consequences. That their decisions really mattered to either bless or curse the human race. And he allowed them the dignity of consequences, meaning that when they chose to defy him, it all came down on their heads. But God still had compassion. Although pronouncing his words of condemnation on their evil, he still had mercy and began doing things to encourage and boost the people in their long slog of waiting for Christmas. Last week I talked to you about the meticulous genealogy. Generation by generation, God was planning out how this was going to happen. Matthew's genealogy uh, starts with Abraham because he's writing for a Jewish audience. He wanted to anchor in the message of the New Testament that it's, it does not replace the faith of the Old Testament people. It fulfills it and complements it and takes it to an even higher level, basing the genealogy on Abraham. Luke's writing for Gentiles starts with Adam and goes all the way to Eve. It's a complete record of the fathers to their sons to hand on this human genealogy of Christ who was born God and man. An extraordinary thing, how careful God is and how Jesus arrived just as was said. Today, I'd like to just chew a little bit with you on the concept of another thing that God did to help the people who were waiting. He gave them inspirational models so they would grasp the fact that they weren't on their own, that God had a plan and he was developing it slowly and carefully and painstakingly, and that his plan was going to do for the people what they really needed. And over the generations, to help people wait and to build up their confidence that God still had a brain, that he still had a heart and still had muscles in his arms, he developed some, well, what would you call them, some action things to work out. He gave them little bursts of models of what Christ was going to be like. One of the first was the model of a Passover lamb, an animal who was going to be slaughtered and whose meat would be eaten, whose blood then would be splattered on their doorposts. And this would bring about two things, sparing Israelites who were sinful too, just like the Egyptians, but also breaking the power of Egypt to release the Israelite slaves from Egypt. And that first Passover meal, which was then to be reenacted every year, 
is where is a sort of a demo that God did. It was an inspirational model to let people see what the Savior was going to be like. Someone who was going to be a substitute, to give his life so that others might live. To absorb the blow, to take the blow on our behalf. And then the Israelites had to reenact it. They not only watched it, they had to do it. It was like family participatory theater to grasp the concept of a substitutionary death and the pardon through the blood shed by someone else, by a victim on our behalf. Along with it was its twin was the priesthood. Uh, Moses' brother Aaron was chosen to develop uh, a clan of people all based on family that would act as go-betweens to reconnect the broken halves of the universe. God and his people, literally, it was like a meat cleaver had gone right down through the middle. We were separate. You're born separate from God. God has spent a lot of energy reconnecting you. We are all born lost. This is a big deal. We need to take this really seriously. We need to be reconnected. And the priesthood were the lead brokers of God's mercy. They were the prayers on people's behalf. They lit the incense and prayed. They were the sacrificers and they were the teachers. They were the ones who would use the knives that would slay the animals. They were the ones who burnt the fires of sacrifice so those um, billows of smoke going up would be pleasing in the Lord's nostrils and he would smile on Israel instead of uh, grind his teeth at them and curse them. Here's a little example of what God had in mind and how the priesthood was actually intended to be an inspirational model. This is a word of scripture you probably don't venture into very often. The prophet Zechariah uh, was told to proclaim this, one of the hardest books of the Bible, but this part you can sure get. The high priest at Zechariah's time, writing about two generations after Jeremiah, uh, was told this, listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, Joshua was the high priest at that time, who are men symbolic of things to come, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I've set in front of you, and I will engrave an inscription on it, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So the priesthood was um, a very important inspirational model of the forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of a victim. Another inspirational model was the brass snake. Because of a massive rebellion of the people of Israel, God sent poisonous snakes to bite them and die. Does that story creep you out, by the way? I hope it does. Hope it re- I hope it does creep you out. It is a dreadful story. But anytime you have to stare at the wrath of God over human sin, it's ugly. It is not a pretty sight. It's scary to see it happening in others, and it's even scarier to realize, well, are those poisonous snakes coming for me too? What am I going to find when I have to meet God? Will I be thrown like Indiana Jones down into a pit of poisonous snakes? It is scary. But the very thing that was causing that death, death itself, Moses was commanded to arrange to have a snake made out of brass and lifted up on a pole. 
that was an incredible inspirational model. You might not think of it as inspiration. It was inspiration. If you were a mama and your child was dying in your arms and Moses is screaming at the top of his lungs, look at the brass snake, look at the brass snake. And you dared to lift up your eyes and pointed your kid at the, at the snake and felt warmth come back into its cold body. And you saw its, its eyes brighten again and you were able to hug your child and feel a living child. Uh, that would be an incredible inspirational model to you. And Jesus himself said, I'm going to be just like that snake. And I think, man, alive, they're out in the desert. People are dying. Where'd Moses find his metalsmiths in a big hurry? He must have sent an all points bulletin. I need the metalsmiths here right away. ASAP, get them here. And he said, hammer, you gotta, you're going to have to make scales out of brass. Hammer that brass flat and somehow clip them all together and make a big tube out of it and get a great big pole so that everybody, the whole nation can see it. Hurry, hurry. And they got this brass snake up in the air and it became what looked like death and failure became life. And that was an inspirational model. Jesus himself in John 3 said, I'm going to be just like that snake. While I'm dying, looking like death itself, I'm going to be giving life. And God sustained the people because they thought he's got a plan. See, everybody is going to doubt God's brains, heart, and muscles. And these inspirational models were like a boost of strength to believe that there's hope. Hang on. One of the biggest of the inspirational models was the royalty, the kingship. When it was working right, a strong and loving king would first of all provide security, secondly would provide prosperity. You'd have enough to eat, so you'd you'd be protected from abuse and invasion. There would be civil order. Criminals were not running loose, terrorizing unarmed people. There would be enough to eat. You could, you could have a job and live in, in, without food insecurity. And also set the pattern for loyalty and faith in God. Because the, however the king's faith was, set the tone for the whole rest of the nation. And that probably is the number one reason why people look back at King David as a golden age. Now, it wasn't so golden, actually, if you were living through the middle of it, because David's reign was marked by almost constant warfare. By my count, he fought at least six major campaigns against the the nations, the Canaanite nations around, who uh, lived in the region around him. And those were kind of touch and go. David won some huge victories, but they came at great loss of life to the Israelite armies. And David like seemed never to be able to draw a calm breath. Not only that, there were three major civil wars, not one, not two, but three major civil wars, two of which were so severe, David was driven off his throne and driven out of Jerusalem and had to go into exile while his army fought for his very survival. So this was not an easy time, but people look back at that because David's work brought about military security and civil security, brought about food security. They could eat again in peace and weren't being raided by attacks from the surrounding nations. And David was always loyal to the Lord and set a great spiritual example. So King David in the Old Testament is like a like a lighthouse, a shining beacon that God provided good leadership at just the right time. 
And not only was he a powerful leader, but he was a loving leader. Uh, here's an example from Ezekiel of what an inspirational model David was. Ezekiel uh, was given words of the Lord to rail at the bad predatory leadership that the poor Jews had to live under. And the sovereign Lord says, I'm going to be the judge and I'm going to save my flock. They'll no longer be plundered. I'm going to place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He'll tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, have spoken. David had been dead for almost 400 years when, I, when Ezekiel wrote that. What he's talking about is I'm sending my son who is going to be a much better leader. He's going to take care of the people he's leading instead of taking advantage of them. So David, uh, when the angel Gabriel said to Mary, your child is going to be the son of David, that was a hallelujah moment. Uh, Mary busted out in that beautiful Magnificat. It's like, oh man, what a great inspirational model. I'm, what a great role my child is going to have. He's going to bring all the benefits that David's kingship did, and of course, even more. All right, that's enough preliminaries. Now I want you to listen to um, some lines from a poem in Jeremiah. This is, these are poetic, prophetic words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. If you've got a Bible handy, I hope by now you're somewhere near uh, Jeremiah 30, because I want you to listen to these words probably not very well known. We're kind of off the beaten trail of usual sermon texts. And uh, so you may not have read these recently, or maybe you've not read them ever. This is what the Lord says. And remember, Jeremiah is writing at the edge of collapse of the Jewish state. This, I don't know if there was ever a bleaker time. It looked like everything was coming apart. The nation was disintegrating. The armies were gone. The money and prosperity were gone. A little tiny rump of a few resistors were holed up inside the walls of Jerusalem, and they weren't going to hold out. Uh, they would be surrounded and besieged, so the end was coming. They all knew we're either going to be slaves or killed. Doesn't that sound about as bleak as it gets? We're going to have nothing left. And not only are we personally going to die, our nation's going to die. And if our nation dies, our whole hope and pride of being Jews is going to die. We were supposed to be special. We were supposed to be the guardians of the word. We were supposed to be the givers of the Savior of the world. The Messiah was supposed to be born from us. And they got right to the edge, and it looked like all was lost. The book of consolation was put into Jeremiah to give people hope. At a moment like that, let's jump to verse 8. In that day, says the Lord Almighty, I'm, a time is coming. I'm going to break the yoke off their necks. See, they're already worse, um, prisoners in Babylon. While Jeremiah was writing, three deportations had already happened, and the big one was yet to come, the biggest and last of them. I will tear off their bonds, and no longer will foreigners enslave them. So before it even had fully happened, God had said, a time is coming when I'm going to undo all of that. So have hope. Instead, they will serve me, the Lord their God. And David, their king, whom I will raise up for them. David's been dead for over three centuries. This is talking about Christ. So this inspirational model helped the people to endure all the stuff 
they had to go through, just as he will help you get through all the stuff you are grinding through right now. What is keeping you up at night? What is making you sweat? What is making you afraid right now? What makes you feel helpless and weak? What is making you, what is, what is sucking the hope and joy out of your heart right now in the first week of December of 2021? I'm sure all of you got something chewing on you. Devil has one hand around you, one of your ankles, and is pulling hard to drag you down in the pit of despair. What is doing it? Let God inspire you with this inspirational model. Don't panic. Don't give up, people of Israel. I am sending uh, King David, as, the, as our beautiful hymn says, great David's greater son. Jesus is coming, who is not going to let go of you. So do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, O Israel. I surely will save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security. No one will make him afraid. I am with you and will save you. That's what the, the name, Christ's name, Emmanuel, means, that God is with us. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. Your hardships are only disciplinary. They are not judgmental. I only allow you pain in your life for therapeutic reasons, only to drive you deeper into my arms. So as you are counting the days, as you are grinding it along as best you can, looking for traces of the Garden of Eden, but feeling the experiences of the, the curse of death and sickness and death that's dragging on all of us. In this Advent season, just look at Jesus and realize he came as prophesied. The, the nation of Israel did not disintegrate. It was still in existence when the fullness of time had come. And a Jewish woman, as God had promised, gave birth to the one who was going to bear the sin of the world. Do not worry about God's brains. He's fully on top of everything. Do not fear about his muscles. He can still make anything happen. And do not fear about his heart. For a God who did not flinch from sending his own son, not only to be born for you, but to die for you, will surely give you everything you need to keep it together. Hang on. O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who groans in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. But rejoice, Emmanuel has come to you, O Israel. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.